Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Let Me Tell You a Story. I'm Sinead DeFries, and I am once again joined by my lovely boyfriend, Mr. Nils Davey. Hello. <laughs> How's it going, baby? Good. Should I shut the bedroom door? Because the turtle's raging. <laughs> I can hear her from here. Get out of your mind. So last week, I told you about the story of a man named Charles C. Morgan, who, after being kidnapped, disappeared a second time, only to be found dead from a single gunshot wound. His death was quickly ruled a suicide, but not everybody believed that ruling. Aside from bizarre evidence being found at the scene of this so-called suicide, Charles had ties to both the mafia and the U.S. Treasury Department. And while his wife, Ruth, and their daughters were consistently met with resistance while questioning the suicide theory, an investigative journalist named Don Devereaux began digging into the mysterious death of Charles C. Morgan, and more importantly, the real reason why anyone would want him dead. Babe, let me tell you a story. Why are you looking at me like that? I, I can't I get into it. I can't get into it. <laughs> acting like a psycho. I was trying to put on an investigative reporter voice. That's how investigative reporters Well, this told. story is a lot about investigative You're reporters. You're wearing a bra. <laughs> Babe. <laughs> You're presenting as an investigative reporter. Well... I'm wearing a bra because it's hot, and you weren't supposed to tell anybody that. And second of all, when when I'm trying to get into it, and I'm looking at your face, and you're looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? It's really hard. That's my normal face. That's how I normally look at you. (laughs) That is so rude. It's not. Let me tell you a story about one investigative reporter who was determined to find out the truth. (laughs) I'm not done yet. Okay. I'll just look the other way. (laughs) And another man who would ultimately meet his faith. Because faith? (laughs) One more time. And another man who would ultimately meet a dark fate. Because he knew too much. Dun, dun, dun. It's exciting. I just, you see, I didn't even read that. I just spit that out. I wasn't looking. Oh, that's right. Because you couldn't look at me without laughing. (laughs) So, Don Devereaux was already an established reporter when Charles C. Morgan died. Right. It's already better. Why? Because it's better names. Oh, why? Charles C. Morgan didn't do it for you? No, but Don Devereaux? Don't speak ill of the dead. No, Don Devereaux? Devereaux. 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 Devereaux sounds sexier. Right, whatever. Don Devereaux was already an established reporter when Charles C. Morgan died. He had been working largely on the case of Don Bowles. Bowles was also an investigative reporter working for the Arizona Republic, covering government corruption and organized crime, specifically the dealings of the Chicago outfit in the Phoenix area. Like we mentioned last week, Arizona was popping off in the 1970s in terms of organized crime. So when Bowles was found murdered in the parking lot of the Hotel Clarendon in June of 1976, it was widely suspected to be the work of the Mafia. Real quick, what is the difference between the Mafia and the mob, or is there no difference? No difference. Okay, because it was used interchangeably, and I've always used them interchangeably. Interchangeably. (laughs) You know how, like, 
overseas, every country has their own mafia. So I wasn't sure if like mob was more outside of Italy. No, and- I think mob and mafia is both like the Italian American organized crime syndicate. You <laughs> <laughs> started out strong. I know. The day Bowles was murdered, he had planned to meet a source who had promised him information into a land deal that involved some serious top state politicians and maybe the mob, which, you know, casual for the 70s in Arizona. But that meeting was simply just a ruse to lure Bowles Bowles to the hotel. While inside, his car was fitted with dynamite. The meeting was conveniently canceled, so Bowles made his way back to his car, a 1976 Datsun. I saw pictures. Was it Z Z forty Z Z whatever the nice ones, the ones you like? I don't know. You said you saw pictures. Yeah, it was great. I liked it. Did, so probably did it look a little bit like a Porsche. It had like a sharp front end. I don't know. That's baby. the one you like. He didn't make it very far, obviously, because the dynamite exploded right under Bowles' feet before he even left the lot. I Whoops. think they said that he drove like two feet or something oh he got the car started yeah he started the car and everything he was backing up out of the spot i wonder if that's like a quick way to go or like a really bad way to go well it would be 11 days before bulls took his final breath jesus fucking christ (laughs) okay got it Yeah, which is absolutely (laughs) horrific but i mean in a way him surviving that explosion helped literally lead to his killer, per se, maybe, allegedly. You'll see what I mean. So, he managed to identify his killer in that time, a man named John Adamson. Adamson would ultimately tell police that he was offered $50,000 to kill Bowles by a man named Max Dunlap. Dunlap wanted Bowles killed for another man named Kemper Marley. Also, Kemper Marley is also a dope name. Marley was a liquor wholesaler who was appointed by then-Governor Raul Castro to the Arizona Racing Commission. Horse and dog tracks, by the way. We don't have to get too deep into that because that is appalling and I am appalled. I was like, I'm sorry, what? Were dog races a big thing? I mean, we still have them in England. Greyhound races. So they're mass-breeding greyhounds? Yeah, but you can have a you can have like a stud greyhound just like you have a stud horse. And they breed them all, right? And people go to these greyhound races? People will go to anything if they can bet on it. People go people were betting on like bomb fights. People go to UFC for Christ's sake. People will bet on anything. That is it sounds barbaric. I mean it sounds like another time. Horse racing is also Well, the same. horse racing is also barbaric. What about disgusting. human racing? Yeah, I think we should race humans. See how we like it. (laughs) Marley had apparently been the biggest financial contributor to Castro's election. So conveniently, Castro nominated him to the board of this racing commission. His nomination to the racing commission went forward to the Senate, and seemingly things were looking good for Marley. That was until Bowles wrote a damning story about Marley's prior business dealings, which were very, very questionable at best and totally corrupt at worst. The story was largely deemed the reason why Marley ultimately lost his nomination, which he did. And so Bowles became a target. But to be completely honest, there's a whole lot more to this story and who ends up being charged and acquitted. And it's honestly another insane twisty story that involves not just potential mafia ties, but more so ties to powerful businessmen with government connections. And the story deserves way more time than we can give it for this episode. 
So I will definitely link some sources if you want to dive into that because you guys, it's wild and I'd honestly highly recommend checking it out. I was like, oh, we should be doing this story. But um, it all kind of ties together. But ultimately, this was just to paint the picture of what the hell was going on in the 70s in Arizona and what journalists and reporters were dealing with. There was a lot of organized crime and more importantly, there were constant questions of government corruption. And also because Don Devereaux is frequently linked to Charles C. Morgan, obviously, because of what he ends up uncovering and because Charles's case is so unbelievably bizarre. But I also wanted to tell Bowles' story because Devereaux truly put his heart and soul into continuing the work of Don Bowles. He didn't come to the same conclusion of who ordered the hit on Bowles, as was widely believed at the time, and he's written hundreds of stories on the case since. And Don Bowles' story is a very important one to tell because he was a journalist working incredibly hard to report the truth to the people of Arizona, and he was silenced because of his efforts to hold people in powerful positions accountable for their crimes and corruption. So you know what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, you're really into this journalism. It was. I mean, you'll see what happens to all these journalists in the story, and it's really sad. So let me recap. So Bowles got blown up before Morgan? Okay. So obviously Devereaux was already arguably an incredible source into what the actual F was happening in Arizona at the time when it was uncovered that a man named Charles, who just so happened to be involved in mob-related money laundering, but was also a secret state witness for the U.S. Treasury Department, was found dead from an absolutely bizarre apparent suicide, Devereaux was like, all right, yeah, let me look into this. There is an incredible interview with Don Devereaux for the Broio True Crime Podcast. It's these two brothers. I listened to this episode today. It's incredible. Um, He explains so much to these guys. And this is what I learned from the interview with Don. All right. So Devereaux confirmed that Charles was, in fact, working with the mafia, specifically for the Bonanno crime family. Joe Bonanno. Yeah. They used to call him Joey Bananas. Or Joe Bananas. Did they? Yeah, that's what I, I mean, read. I mean, he's pretty famous, I think. Yeah. He, in mob circles. At the time, the Bonanno family was the one of the top five crime boss, uh, crime boss families, whatever, crime families in the country. I think they might have name-checked it in Goodfellas or Casino. Yeah, actually. they were huge. And also, I read that it was founded in, like, the 1890s. Oh, yeah, well, that's Sicilian shit. And it's they're still active today. Hell yeah, they got business. Maybe they went, but maybe they went legit. You know, banana business. What? (laughs) (laughs) For a second, you like you had me there. I was like, oh yeah, maybe. (laughs) All right. So uh, Devereaux said that first Charles worked as an escrow agent, like we talked about, and then ultimately in the gold and platinum operation that we also talked about, right? But Charles was keeping a whole lot of records, literally all of his illegal dealings with Banano being recorded by Charles. And naturally, Banano was like, mm, like what re- the hell are you doing? Recorded on tape or like he just wrote everything he, down? He had records, like paper trail records of all of the illegal cool. shit they were doing. Crushing it. Like asking to get in trouble, right? It's just really organized. Yeah. When you're a realtor, you you like if you're a realtor, you'd understand. You got to do a lot of paperwork. So Devereaux believes that it was because of all of these records that Charles was keeping that he became a security risk to Bananos 
illegal operations, right? He wanted those records and he ordered the murder of Charles in the process. Devereaux said he did not believe the police or FBI were involved in the actual murder, that that was the mob's doing, but he did say the FBI helped cover it all up in order to protect the CIA, who were actually involved in those gold operations. Of course they were, dude. The CIA's, CIA is always doing shit like yeah. that. Yeah. They love it. <laughs> they love slush funds, yes. right? So they love getting money, and then they can be like, let's use this to, like, invade Cuba 100%. secretly. 100%. They love that shit. 100%. You just, like, hit the nail on the head. That's what everyone, like, basically alleges or suspects, is that they were like, oh, look at all these illegal gold operations. We can just piggyback right on there. Hell yeah. yeah. I kind of wish I worked for the CIA. Dude, can you imagine? It seems so tight. I just feel like... The amount of intel you have and the amount of shady things you are required to do <laughs> to work for the CIA is just mind-blowing. We don't even know the half of it. No, they're always up to some really crazy shit. Yeah, and it's all shady. Yeah. So when Morgan died, the FBI took all of his business records, but never owned up to that. Never returning any of those records to his family. So just how much more were in those records is unknown, but Don Devereaux still somehow managed to uncover as much as he did, which honestly is incredible, including the identity of the hitman responsible for Charles C. Morgan's death. Devereaux said the hitman was hired by Bonanno, and he and police had identified exactly who he was. But because so much time had passed by the time they were able to identify him, along with the fact that the sheriff's file in Morgan's case had somehow disappeared, and that because police had initially adamantly stuck to the suicide theory, a defense attorney would end up having a field day proving reasonable doubt if the state ever chose to prosecute the case and charge the hitman. I'm pretty sure Devereaux said that he had been tied to other hits. Did, did Devereaux ever drop the name or like, no? He did not. He did say that like him and the authorities were like happy with what they had come up with. They're like, oh, this is definitely the guy. They were able to talk to multiple people and figure it all out. But because back in the seventies, the police had literally strongly said suicide. That would be the first thing that a defense attorney would say. It was sure. like, you said it was suicide. What changed? Also the fact that there's no file now that it just, it was so much corrupt stuff happening around that case already that it would be a really difficult case to prosecute. And I do agree with that. But it is kind of sad that they know exactly who did it and he's just living his life. Yeah, maybe just like his wife sucks or something. So maybe there's some karmic retribution. Yeah, maybe. Hopefully. <laughs> Watch, he lives like a great life. <laughs> right. His wife's like hot, just, like, playing 40 golf. years younger than him. <laughs> <laughs> Devro told the podcast that the only real question that remained after all was said and done in the investigation into Charles's death was that damn $2 bill. As you'll recall, in last week's episode, I told you about a mysterious $2 bill that was found pinned inside Charles's undies when his body was discovered. The bill had a map on the back of it that led to a known smuggling area near the Mexican border. And most interestingly, Devereaux told the podcast that the seven people identified on the bill were Masons, and that Ecclesiastes 12 is actually a biblical reference used a lot in Masonic rituals. Fucking Freemasons. He went on to say that Charles was actually a very active Mason at the time of his death. <laughs> so, like, I still don't know where the connection is there, but it's interesting. Well, maybe that's just his emergency Freemason get-out-of-jail card, you know? Like, if he gets pulled over and the cop's like, hey, I'm taking you to jail, he's like, 
But we're both Freemasons. Check out my secret $2 bill and my skid marks. On- <laughs> <laughs> Ew. Honestly, like, Freemasons are something I have tried to understand for so long. Ryan's friend, who is a Freemason, made a documentary, which I believe was bought by Netflix, about being a Freemason, which if you think about it, it's hilarious because the whole point of being a Freemason is it's a secret society. I was just going to say. But he made a whole documentary about it. So I think they're like rebranding into something more like a social club. <laughs> but like essentially it's like, oh, hey, I, I'm a general contractor and like this guy over here is like, oh, I own a bunch of buildings. Like they do just a bunch of business. It's like a really actual kind of networking club for like, oh, I'm not going to give this to some random, this job to some random guy. I'm going to give it to someone that I know at the Freemasons. So it's like this whole, like, old boys club of getting shit done. That's bizarre. So while it seems a lot of questions were answered surrounding Charles's death, he wouldn't be the only casualty during Devereaux's investigation. At 11 p.m. on May 14th, 1990, a man named Doug Johnston was found shot to death in his car in the parking lot of the computer graphics company where he worked. Johnston had no gunpowder residue anywhere on his body, nor was there even a gun found at the scene. But that did not stop the authorities from suggesting Mr. Johnston may have just taken his own life. Dude, they love it in Arizona. <laughs> it's insane. Wait, he shot himself multiple times? No, no, no. He had one gunshot wound, but there was no gunshot powder residue. Uh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there's that. But even more questionable is there was no gun. There was no gun. Yeah. They were like, well, somebody could have come by Did they and say stolen that? the gun. Did they yeah, say there that? was there was allegations that maybe. But he was found like literally minutes after like Dude, he was supposed to be at work. Being a cop in the seventies in Arizona must have been so easy. <laughs> just anything like ah suicide don't worry about it suicide. yeah it's just insane someone wrote a bank no 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 it's suicide yeah it's bizarre it's very very bizarre so here's what you need to know about doug johnston the 35 year old lived right across the street from our friend don Devereaux. Mm-hmm. the only difference in the addresses were one number Devereaux lived at 2233 and johnston lived at 2238 both Devereaux and johnston drove copper station wagons and sported facial hair Do you see what I'm getting at here? It wasn't long after Johnston's death that Devereaux was tipped off by his own sources, including the CIA and the Israeli intelligence, that Devereaux had a target on his back. Hold up. Yeah? When did Mossad come into this? Uh, 1990, apparently. (laughs) What the fuck? Well, think about it this way. By 1990, think about it. Devereaux is a highly connected investigative reporter. He's got sources everywhere. He's got informants. He's got connections everywhere. That makes him sound really cool. He, Dude, and his name is Don Devereaux. Yeah. He's the coolest guy ever. And listening to his interview, I was like, this is amazing. This guy's life is so tight. But unfortunately for Doug Johnston, he might have taken the bullet for him, which is really, really sad. It's widely believed that Johnston's death was a case of mistaken identity. Can you imagine? That is so sad. And his whole family was like, no, he did not commit suicide. Like, he had apparently just finished school. He had a great job. He had the family, like a really great family. Him and his wife were like really happy. And all of his friends and family were like, no, he did not commit suicide. 
There's nothing pointing to suicide. Plus, there was no gun. I think the moral of the story is don't drive the same car as your neighbors. Get something interesting. Conversation wagons, though. I mean, that does sound tight. Yeah. Now, if this case could get any crazier, let's fast forward to 1991. Devereaux was contacted by a freelance writer named Danny Casolaro. This is this might be a name you've heard of before because his case has been widely covered. Casolaro had been investigating government corruption that allegedly implicated officials from the U.S. Justice Department. And it all started with what is now known as the Inslaw Affair. It seemed to all come back to what he called the Octopus, or a network of U.S. officials, intelligence agents, and organized crime members who had alleged involvement in many huge scandals of the time, such as Iran-Contra, like, for example. There was, like, a murder that people believed that they were responsible for. And yes, by 1991, Castellar was wrapping up his year-plus-long investigation into these people. You know what the octopus sounds like? What? Hydra. It does. <laughs> it really does. So some backstory on the Inslaw affair. The allegations were that officials from the Department of Justice illegally distributed a computer program called Promise, developed by the computer company Inslaw. Inslaw had contracted Promise to the U.S. Justice Department exclusively, but somehow other countries had gotten their hands on it. Inslaw would go on to accuse the DOJ of stealing promise in order to use the software covertly against other foreign governments and withholding money from Inslaw with hopes of driving it into bankruptcy. The company did end up filing for bankruptcy when the DOJ stopped paying them. Basically went back on their contract. These allegations did end up, you know, uh, leading to a full-on investigation because it was widely believed that there was some truth to this. The Legal proceedings lasted like a decade, I mean, apparently. I, I fully believe this based on listening to Business Wars and like the Microsoft, mm-hmm. you know, like the start of Microsoft and, and all that stuff and like how licensing software was, it was, it was all new in the 70s. Like all the software shit was new, was, yeah. computer stuff yeah. was new. And so I fully, or 80s, whatever. So mm-hmm. I fully, like, I could fully see the government being like, oh, we want this, we paid for it. And then the company's like, you have to license it. And they're like, oh, but where are you going to use it to like give it away to other countries for free? Mm-hmm. But what they don't know is it's like a Trojan program so we can like fuck with all their shit. Which right. like, they still, people do that now. Like that right. still ha- that happened this week. Yeah, 100%. It broke your computer. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid Microsoft. <laughs> Windows 10. But yeah, that makes sense. And then if they're like, well, we want it, but we're not going to pay this licensing, what are we going to do? Oh, let's just not pay them so they go bankrupt, and then we have it. Right. Which and makes we don't total, ever have to talk about this ever again. <laughs> makes total sense. Yeah, it's insane. So that's kind of where it started. So Casolaro started basically with Inslaw and had interviewed the, the founders of Inslaw, and he started reporting on that. He basically looked into this corruption of the DOJ and ended up uncovering tons of corruption. So there's just all this stuff going on that he believed were the same few people I mean, operating and making these things happen. Iran culture was like 100% the CIA, right? And doing what the DOJ did seems very CIA. Doesn't it? Yeah. Especially doing like covert operations against other countries. Uh-huh. There was just a lot of that happening in that time. It was everything was so secretive and shady. Well, I also think if you think about the time period, you could get away with a lot, right? right. Because there's no cell phones. Right. There's no like data tracking and GPS and mm-hmm. shit. So you could do like crazy fucked up shit and like 
Right. For all we know, that was happening for forever up until the 90s when, yeah, right. when all of a sudden computers were becoming a thing and that's when people started paying attention. No, 100%. I think the CIA was doing a bunch of crazy shit. Everyone was having affairs. Right. That was life. Mm-hmm. You know? Good times. A simpler time. <laughs> <laughs> How did I know you were going to say some shit like that? I mean, when I was a kid, let me, t- let me tell you a story. <laughs> when I was a kid and I wanted to meet my friends... On a Thursday night after school, they would you would organize it in the day at school. You'd be like, be at the tree by the roundabout at 6 p.m. And if you didn't make it, if you were five minutes late, you're fucked. Like, you can't find them. They're gone. Yeah. They, like, you won't see them until tomorrow. Yeah. So you had to be there. You walk back to your house like, kicking yeah, like, rocks. Fuck, I've got nothing to do. <laughs> That's why I'm always on time. That's my that's my feeling about our relationship. I'm always on time uh, to everything. Honestly, that's really funny because I, I dealt with that at a very young age. Because at least then we had like landlines and stuff like that, you know, or like you could get. We your had phone. a fucking telephone, <laughs> but like we used it. We weren't allowed to use it. <laughs> yeah, we used it. Um, but I, the only thing I do kind of miss about being a kid and not having like texting, right? You would just kind of show up at people's houses and then ask to hang out. And that was so sweet to me. I think it's that. And then it's also like, you, like, this happens every day in everyone's life, not so much during the pandemic, but like when you're back to socializing, you, all your, you're going to the bar, five of your friends are coming, you get to, you get to the bar, and then two of your friends text you, ah, I gotta do something else. And you're like, that never used to happen. Right, because you didn't have a way to get out of things. Well, you could just not show up and then you're fucked for the future. No yeah. one's going to invite you to shit. No one's going to invite you to anything. But like, I, all the whole like, oh, we went to another bar. Or like, oh yeah, I'm at this. I ch- Like, hey, I'm at this. Let's yeah. do this. I don't, I don't like that. I like one plan <laughs> organized the day before and you do it. And you don't, even if it's miserable, you, just, you don't talk to anyone about it until it's time to right. be there. Very organized. That's amazing. I like that. <laughs> but didn't we have this conversation before where we like when people just show up at the house? It's like very sweet and endearing. To like me, when a friend just shows up. To me, that's very American, though. So there's two things that I think are very American. So in England, like, your best friends might show up at your house, but probably you would have to clear it with your parents first because everyone's, like, super uptight. So to me, when I'm watching American movies when I was growing up, people show up at people's houses was like, oh, that's amazing. And then people talking on the phone for hours. Like, you're watching a movie from the 90s or the 80s and a girl's in the room, Mm -hmm. like, just talking on the telephone to her friends. And I'm like, holy shit, that's crazy. Well, when we first started dating, you never liked talking on the phone. I, I... I've taught myself to talk on the phone. It's insane. Like, I mean, we've been together now, what? We met in July of... (laughs) We met in July. This would be our... This is the month we met six years ago. Right? Seven. Seven years ago. And I swear, like, half of that time, we only texted. We FaceTime a lot now, too. Not a lot. Well, I mean, we FaceTime and talk on the phone a crazy amount compared to what we used to for the first like couple years of our relationship because you refuse to talk on the phone. Yeah. I mean, 90% of my work is on the phone mm-hmm. now, which sucks. That's not true. 50%. A lot. You're on the phone all the time. Yeah. What are you talking about? But yeah, sometimes it's just like seeing your cute little face. <laughs> not when you're making that face though. <laughs> all right. So back to Danny Casolaro. 
In August of 1991, Casalaro had plans to conclude his investigation after he met with informants in Martinsburg, West Virginia. It was around this time that he had also contacted our dude, Don Devereaux, and asked to connect and share info about Charles C. Morgan, specifically his money laundering dealings. So somewhere along his investigation into the octopus, Casalaro may have found a connection to Charles in one way or another. It makes sense, right? Money, laundering. Sure. Yeah. Sure, totally. Sure. I mean, it's just crazy to me because it's 1991 now. He's been doing this investigation for a year. And now he's calling Don Devereaux because Don Devereaux had a lot of information about Charles's death, which happened in the late 70s. So it's like, how long was this going on? And who was all, you know, connected and whatnot? And like, how deep did this all go? And are all of these people truly connected by one major underlying theme, which is corruption at the highest level. It's just wild to me because now you're looking at a 20-year period. And over that time, different people have died and different people have uncovered different things and different cases have been like prosecuted or taken to trial or alleged or accused. And it's just like, how is this all coming back to the same thing? It's wild. 20 years. It's wild. That's why I don't really buy into the octopus theory. If it was that complicated, someone would have flipped at some point in 20 years. Someone would have got caught for something else. They'd be like, hey, I can give you some sweet information if I don't go to jail. Right? Like, it's just too complicated to be a conspiracy. So I, I think, don't know. I don't think you, it's just CIA shit. Don't like, you think it's up. so telling, though, that, like, if you see other people dying for uncovering things, that you might actually hold on to information? No, because people flip on the mob all the time, and the whole mob concept is mm -hmm. if you talk, you die, right? Devereaux agreed to share his research with Casalaro, and Casalaro headed to Martinsburg to conclude his investigation. On August 8th, 1991, Casalaro arrived in West Virginia. The next day, he met with a man named William Turner. Turner would later say that he handed over documents describing corruption. Danny believed that corruption described in those documents was directly tied to the octopus. The following day on August 10th, so now just two days after he arrived in West Virginia, a hotel maid entered Danny Casalaro's room and made a horrific mm -hmm. discovery. Uh-oh. Danny Casalaro was dead in the bathtub of his hotel room. His wrists had been slit, and when police arrived, they found a suicide note that read, to my loved ones, please forgive me, most especially my son, and be understanding, God will let me in. And then West Virginia police called Arizona police, and Arizona police are like, sounds like a suicide. <laughs> <laughs> Case closed. Well, <laughs> in the tub next to his body was a razor blade. So, yes, you know where this is going. The police are like, well, here's a body, here's a razor blade, his wrists are slit, and there's a suicide note. This is more convincing than I shot myself with, with an imaginary no gun. gun. <laughs> yes. So Danny Casalaro's wrists had been slit 12 times. Ooh. Okay. Danny's family was not notified of his death until a full two days later. When his brother Tony finally learned of Danny's death, he immediately asked about all of Danny's belongings and obviously his files. The hundreds of documents that Danny had gathered over his year-plus-long investigation that he had taken with him to West Virginia. I guess his neighbor or a family friend had helped him pack the car, and she had specifically stated that he had taken, like, briefcases. Yeah, I mean, he's been doing a, what, 12-year investigation or whatever? No, a year long. 
Oh. But a, a, a year-long investigation into the dealings into, over a 12, 15-year right. period or whatever. So he had boxes and boxes and boxes. Oh, my God, yeah. And this was at the end of his investigation. This was supposed to be his last stop or whatever. And the guy, Turner, said that he had given him documents the day before, remember? He was like, I gave him do documents. We, do we trust that guy? I don't know why we wouldn't. So Danny's brother, Tony, is like, okay, well, we're, like, first of all, what the hell are you talking about? Second of all, where is all of his stuff? I need all of his documents, everything that he's been working on, right? And the police are like, well, what are you talking about? There was nothing of the sort found at the scene. No documents, no briefcases, nothing. And to this day, those files have never been recovered, including the document that William Turner had given Casalaro literally the day before. But wait, there's more. <laughs> A professional cleaning crew came in and cleaned the hotel room the very next day, one day after Danny's death destroying any potential evidence, including two bloody towels that a housekeeper reported seeing right after Danny's body was discovered. The housekeeper specifically noted that it looked like the towels had been used to wipe up blood. Danny's brother claims that Danny was embalmed without the permission of anyone in their family, and autopsies revealed bruising on his arm and head that cannot be explained, and the autopsy also suggested that he was not alone at the time of his death. And according to Tony, the autopsy revealed that the tips of three fingernails were missing from one of Danny's hands. Sloppy work. Is it, though? That's a sloppy, like, fake suicide. If there's all these, po- all these things that are pointing towards somebody else. Well, is it sloppy when ultimately the case was closed and the official ruling was suicide? I mean, the whole, like, the fingernails, the bruising... It's circumstantial, right? That wouldn't... Like, you can't... I don't think you could make a case in a court that, like, he definitely did not commit suicide because that could all be explained some other way. But it's not clean. You definitely know? not. I think if anything is sloppy in this, it's the police work. I feel like any police officer with more than a couple brain cells... Would be like, oh, wait, he was doing a year-long investigation and all of his files were missing? All of the potential evidence was gone. Don't you think the police are complicit? If Danny was investigating the octopus, and let's say that exists, or even if it doesn't exist, he's investigating, like, people in the power structure of government and the police, mm-hmm. and he's going to close his investigation out. Right. They have no motivation to recover and release anything that would expose their bosses or their boss's bosses yeah. or whatever. I guess the argument could be made that if this was an ordered hit that was done by extremely powerful people, what was stopping those extremely powerful people by infiltrating the crime scene after the fact or sending someone that or- they had ties to to be overlooking to oversee the the investigation into yeah, his death. Yeah, or just they make a call to the chief of police in wherever the fuck yeah. it was and say, like, hey, listen, this one, like, just, you know, do it do it sloppy. Yeah. And then he tells his officers, like, oh, don't worry about it. We're like, this is definitely a suicide. Yeah, the chief or the chief's like, hey, Todd, come here. I'm sending you to the scene of a suicide. And Todd's like, suicide? He's like, suicide. What, like, whatever, like... It just seems like it had to have been done that way because... 
how, like, how could you be so quick to, even if you truly believed it was a suicide, I could maybe see that just based on what's found there. But how could you be so quick to destroy evidence? This isn't the 70s. This is 1991. And you'd think that you would not completely professionally well, clean the hotel well, room 24 hours later. That's what I mean, right? Like, I feel like, it, I, when I say the police are complicit, I don't mean like they did it. I mean, like, there's some element where someone was told like, hey, just don't try that hard. And they're like, all right, great. You know, that, and yeah. that's it. Or they sent their worst car. It feels very uh, lax. But also, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I don't Maybe maybe they did try and maybe it was the simplest, most logical answer that he committed suicide. Yeah, know. yeah. Ultimately, Danny's family has always believed that Danny was killed because he knew too much. And that seems to be the constant theme throughout all of these stories. That the police say one thing and the families are like, nah, dude, he was involved in too much stuff. And that's what got him killed. How Danny's research into government corruption and the octopus related to Charles C. Morgan may never be known unless by some miracle Danny's files are recovered one day. Luckily, there were always enough people who spoke up about these murders so that the work of these journalists could be heard and read and the corruption could be exposed. What happened to Donnie Devereaux? Based on what I had read, Don Devereaux did end up taking a step back because he was warned multiple times to stop investigating. By whom? By his sources. No. By his informants, by his, by his sources. By Mossad. Yeah, and the CIA and whoever else... He basically was told multiple times, like, Doug Johnston's death was supposed to be you and that they will come back and get you. And in the interview, he he also said the same thing. He was like, I, I feel really bad that Doug Johnston had to die, but I do believe that that hit was meant for me. So he ended up taking a step back. Um, he only got kind of pulled back into it with Casolaro because Casolaro asked to see his files and then Casolaro ends up dead. And it's like, yeah. if I were Don Devera, I'd be like, ooh, you know, <laughs> did a lot of work on this case and anyone I talk to ends up dying. Yeah, or my poor neighbor who had nothing to do with this at all. Put me on the sports desk. He continued his work for uh, Don Bowles for a long time after as well. He did a spot on Unsolved Mysteries after... This, these hits were placed on his life and they had basically said, like, if if somebody tries to take out Devereaux, like, it'll be bad for you. And he said after that, the threats kind of backed down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess, so that's like the equation, right? It's like, you, if you, the more media exposure you get, in a way, the safer you are after a certain point. But if you start going public to like a local newspaper or some shit and then you go and then you die mm -hmm. maybe no one gives a shit but like if you're on TV and like a lot of people get into the case I think that's some sort of protection right? A hundred percent and then it would be so much more obvious that no one could say suicide for that they'd be like well duh this was an ordered hit because everybody at that point already knew that people were dying that were surrounded like surrounding all of these cases you know? Yeah. A couple of other things to note while we talk about theories, is that Tony, Danny's brother, had said that a week before his death, Danny told him, if anything happens to me and they try to say <laughs> it was suicide, don't believe them. Hmm. 
So basically, this octopus thing was the Reagan Justice Department and a couple of other high whatever politicians and business people and whatever. So Homie, who gave him the files that then went missing, did he say what was in the files that he handed over? He said it was corruption. It was corruption documents. He was like a former employee of like a major contractor. And he had handed over documents like... That were basically like, oh, here's more corruption. Because at the time, Casalaro was tracking the financial dealings right. of the octopus. Right. So he was just proving more corruption. But that wasn't his major meeting that That weekend. wasn't the big breakthrough? No, because I had read that he had met his next door neighbor in the hotel. And he had told this guy that he was supposed to meet somebody at 9 p.m. And then the guy saw him and he was like, I think I was, blo- I think I've been blown off. Which, again, might have just been a ruse. This meeting might have been a ruse. But he was like, I think I've been blown off because he did tell the guy that he met that he was meeting this guy and he you know, this, he had a big meeting coming up. But he did mention to this guy as well that he thought he was being blown off. And mm. the next day was when he was found dead. Mm. So it is really interesting. But that Turner, William Turner, was not his, his big meeting of the weekend or the week. It was this other person who apparently didn't even show up. When police looked into who else was staying in the hotel, like his neighbors or whatever, there was an unnamed family on the other side and there was no other information about that. Just the whole thing to me is just absolutely wild. And then going back to um, Charles C. Morgan, a lot of people had believed that he had said Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1 through 8, because there was something he had put in the Bible, in right. that section of the Bible. And if you remember, Ruth said that two people claiming to be FBI agents showed up at the house. Ransacked this house. Ransacked it looking for something. Did they take the Bible? They don't know. Ruth doesn't know if she Ruth has a Bible. Well, Ruth didn't know if Charles had a different Bible or whatever. There was nothing about that. And if if they did take the, Bi- the Bible, it, it didn't really matter. And the FBI, Don Devereaux had called the FBI asking about information about charles morgan and he said in that podcast that the fbi lied to him and said we have no idea who charles morgan is but they did because later on it came out that they had covered up the murder right but the fbi basically the freedom of information act was amended there was a law that was amended that allowed the fbi to lie if they believed that national security was a threat so he said that they used that as a way to be like well we don't have to tell him anything because we're allowed to do that because this could be a threat to our national security. It's a good excuse. It's a wonderful excuse. Yeah. So I do feel like at the center of all of these stories over a 20-year period, it would be really hard to not very, very highly consider that the government is corrupt or was corrupt as F at the time. So you know how I don't like unsolved crimes? You've given me three unsolved crimes in one story. Charles Morgan's was solved. Was it? Yeah, they found the hitman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Doug Johnston was pretty much solved. It's, it would be, you'd be hard-pressed to convince anybody that it wasn't a case of mistaken identity. I just think that at the center of this, there could be a serious link. And I honestly feel like this answer is... Not that far away. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if this isn't figured out to its full extent. 
It's also kind of scary when you know that some of these mafia families are still active. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's one. Two, a lot of people are dead. So just to a- approach it from a different angle, right? At the time of Casalaro's death, it was heavily believed that he had financial troubles, that he had become despondent because he wasn't doing so well. And a lot of people painted him as being like this investigative reporter and blah, blah, blah. But I had read a bunch of things that like his career was not successful at all. And that he actually like really didn't hadn't done that much work and that he became kind of obsessed with this case. So a lot of people are like, did pop culture and the kind of the mystery and the conspiracy kind of hype this up to be way more and make it seem like he was on to way more than what he actually was it's definitely more exciting to it's, present it as like yeah, this global conspiracy. A hundred percent. But I don't necessarily believe that's true, but I do think it's important to touch on the fact that like, like we said last week, there's no way to know what goes through someone's head before they commit suicide. So is suicide a possibility? Absolutely. I just think that there's so many coincidences here that it shouldn't have been ruled a suicide as quickly as it was. So the whole thing is just kind of bizarre. I think Castellaro's story is really sad like just really really sad whether or not it was a suicide or not like if it was a suicide that's depressing because he had worked so hard it's definitely sadder if he did commit suicide yeah because he felt like he was a failure or whatever. right right that's definitely a sadder story or if he got blown off by this meeting and he was already having financial troubles trying to write this expose and that was like the final straw or it's really sad if he had finally figured out what he'd been looking for and he was taken out for it either way it's depressing yeah but at least that way he had like a victory of like he solved the puzzle you know. Yeah, but he never got to show that puzzle to No, anybody. but he did solve it. It's <laughs> a very positive way of thinking of it. Thank you. So because there are so many different sources that I used in order to tell all these stories, I'm going to link them in the show notes just so you guys can dive in deep if you choose to do so. I would highly recommend checking out Don Devereaux's reportings and his interview just because it's just so good and his life is so interesting and all of the work that he did on all of these cases is so interesting. But yeah, I wanted to give credit to all of these people that have told these stories because it's a lot and I think it's a really amazing that there are so many reporters that continued the work of these journalists. I can't even imagine, right? Like for a long time, I did celebrity news and just being like terrified to do... Uh, my job every day would have been absolutely insane. So I just think it's kind of incredible that there are people that have worked really, really hard to make sure that these stories are told. Whether or not we all buy into the conspiracy of it all or not, it's like one of those things that I do think is important to explore because these things happen. These were real people with real jobs and real families and real lives. And I do think it's kind of incredible as crazy as all of these stories are. Um, Just the work that all these people did. And that's kind of like... I think where we can cap the Arizona craziness, um, but obviously if I come across anything else, I'm sure I would love to revisit this. There is a really crazy murder that has alleged ties to the octopus and one girl kind of discovered it while trying to figure out who killed her father. She came across Casalaro's work and it kind of opened up this crazy door for her. And there's just a lot having to do with that time period. 
But I think for next week, I'm going to go more current, um, I believe. So if you have thoughts on this story, I definitely want to hear them as well. You guys can leave any comments, questions in the reviews, but I also do have an email for the show. It is letmetelloustorypod at gmail.com. So feel free to email any suggestions or any thoughts that you have on these, and I'll definitely shout them out. Uh, for sure on next week's show. Any final thoughts, babe? How do you feel about the mafia? <laughs> uh, great movies. Mm-hmm. Great movies. Uh, that case is like a mess, dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated, but it's interesting. It's Yeah, it's wacky, for sure. Lots of suicides. Lots of suicides. <laughs> yeah, very, very sad. Um, all right, well, I guess that that's it. Shout out to that one person that gave us a one-star review, though. Hey, oh, y'all. Oh, haters gonna hate. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, no, lots of really good reviews, though. We really do appreciate it. Um, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.